Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. If you've been listening since the early episodes, or even since the beginning, then I thank you for supporting us and listening to our content. Today is episode 50, which I guess marks a landmark number, and quite honestly a checkpoint that we're really proud to have reached to date. To celebrate this point, it only seems right to have a great guest, and for today, that is going to be none other than Nick Winkleman. Nick, as many of you will know, is a very well-known coach globally and leads by example and reputation as an expert on the language of coaching, which funnily enough is also the title of his new book. Nick is a coach that I've come through the ranks knowing about, listening to and trying his coaching ideas out in practice. He really needs no introduction and this episode will not disappoint. Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast is sponsored by industry leader Vol Performance, makers of the Nordboard. Since its creation, the Nord board has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength, combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualization, and cloud analytics. The Nord board helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train athlete hamstring strength and imbalances. To learn more, go to our sponsor, vodperformance.com. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. If you've heard of Nick before, then enjoy, but if this is your first encounter, then you're in for a treat. But here is today's episode between myself, Andy McDonald, and Nick Winkleman. Nick Winkleman, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you, mate? Yeah, Andy, pleasure is all mine. I'm very good. Very good. Just to begin with, um, you know, I'm spending a lot of my life on COVID uh, Zoom calls at the moment, interacting with other coaches and clinicians, and it's increasingly apparent that a lot of us have side gigs and outside interests. So with that in mind, can you tell me about the DJing and uh, when are you next going live? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, like you said there, many of us have, have hobbies and, and probably the fact that we uh, have axed the commute to and from it just gives us a little bit more fringe time and so for me music is has always been something fun and when i started to travel to uh, to germany i got into the house i got the house music bug and said let me have a crack at it so uh it's been good i think we did we did 10 live sessions on instagram lately my, my kids had like a uh, we did a dj party for for over zoom for all of our friends so that consumed one of the saturdays but we'll definitely get back in here one of these weeks, at least have a closing show before I get back into the thick of it. <laughs> so I'd hope a lot of the listeners would have heard of you and especially so amongst the strength coaches listening. Just in case this is their or this is anybody's first experience hearing you now, could you provide some yeah. background context on what you've done through to uh, where you are now? Sure. So. Uh, as you said there, Andy, by trade, I'm a strength conditioning coach. You know, my very first job at 15 was in a gym. But so technically, I've been a strength coach 15 years, but I feel like I've been doing it from 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 day one, so to speak. And if I kind of look at my career, it's been two big chunks. Chunk number one is I spent 10 years at Exos, formerly Athletes Performance, where two major jobs. I oversaw the NFL Combine Development Program. And so helped collegiate athletes who were in route to the NFL basically prepare for eight weeks to go to the NFL combine, as we would say, the biggest interview of their life, and to make sure they jumped as high as they could, ran as fast as they could over the 40 and all the other physical measurements alongside making sure they were ready for their, their rookie year. When I wasn't doing that, I spent quite a bit of time on the coach ed side of things. So I ran the Exos coach education that when I left there in 2016, 
running courses in over 25 countries. So very proud of of what we're able to do there on the coach ed side. So I definitely see myself on both sides of the fence. I'm equally passionate about developing other coaches as I am developing athletes in particular. But my journeys have now taken me to Ireland. So I've been here since 2016 and I'm the head of athletic performance and science for Irish rugby. And so knowing that you probably have a, a global you know, listener group, basically from a rugby perspective, and I'm talking to the Americans listening in, we have a centralized union, which basically means our national team, the one that wears the green jersey, also oversees the four professional teams that make it up. So I'm really fortunate, Andy, that I get to work with about 35 strength conditioning coaches and sports scientists just within our domain that are just phenomenal. And to be able to learn and support in more of a leadership role, but still, I'm able to keep the sword sharp doing quite a bit of coaching and speed development on the seven side and when our national team gets together. So if you would, that's kind of my background as a strength and conditioning coach. But I would say then the red thread all the way from college to now that is kind of connected that if there's a, an area of interest for me, I'm interested in, in connection between mm-hmm. people. I'm interested in how we as a coach connect with the athlete and then notably through the medium of communication how we actually use language to coach and connect. Very interested in how that can either help or possibly hinder the development of these movement skills, of these movements we teach. So even though I'm a strength conditioning coach, I'm spending far more time of late talking about skill development more generally to sport coaches, to physiotherapists, even to chiros, and how our language impacts the way people move through things like instruction cueing and feedback so that's kind of me in a, in a nutshell when was it kind of along your your coaching pathway to now that you really decided to focus in on kind of the art of how you teach and coach and communicate with people what was the kind of was there like a moment where you really started to um, spark that interest and dive into that world yeah you know I think there were a couple of moments along the way but probably the one that I normally lead with with this question. I got to go all the way back to college and I was I was just cutting my teeth as a personal trainer. And you know, so for me uniquely for those listening if you've never been a personal trainer, it's a great initial entry into the movement profession because by its very design you have to program for a diversity of people, you have to learn to communicate to a diversity of people. And it's just an end of one. It's you and that person. So you don't have all of these other resources. And so oftentimes your ability to know how to adapt and adjust has to be quite high as well if you're going to be successful. So that was kind of this, think of it as the context I was sitting in. So by its very nature, if you're paying attention, you're going to quickly see if you're not effective at communicating. Even if we take the more sinister side of it on the salesperson side, right? If you're not good at communication, you're not going to be successful. So when I started to peer into this, it just so happened that I, like many, was shadowing, was following another coach who was, so to speak, a mentor of sorts. And by chance, he was just a master communicator. But what was interesting, Andy, about his communication, that it took me probably a year to finally name it, was that he was really good at cueing. He was really good at putting an idea in the client's head that allowed that kind of light bulb 
to go off, you know, whether it was getting them to feel a movement better, to perform a movement better. And a lot of the people for context he was working with were bodybuilders. And so many of them would come in with the oddest request. I need to get my posterior delt bigger, or I need to get my lower trap bigger. And thus with bigger inevitably came the ability to activate, to be aware of. And so he would just, the way he would communicate Everyone, including myself, would lean in just to listen to every word. And it was like he was a surgeon. It was like a scalpel with language. And these bodybuilders, amateur, all of them would be able to get the pump, to get the activation in these niggly areas that otherwise they couldn't find. And that as a, as a microcosm of communication and a microcosm of the outcome you'd look to achieve with your communication just brightened the fact that cueing, that our language was a variable, just like periodization and exercise selection and reps and sets. Our language was a variable that had a profound impact on the outcome. And that seed for me has just grown. And now I've just been committed to that because so few people talk about it, even though in practice, it is something we do all the time. And, you know, once I saw the impact of inspecting my own communication and evolving and developing as a practice, as a habit, as a behavior, my own communication. When I still saw, so to speak, towards the end of that, even though I continue to develop, that still no one had written a book on it. Hmm. There, was, there, was, there was research, most certainly, but there was not, call it popular science, accessible materials that anyone and everyone could, could use, that I could, when I was that young personal trainer, could have bought on Amazon for myself. And so after... Going through over a decade of studying and applying, getting a PhD, not because I wanted to be an academic, but because I wanted to be able to ask and answer the questions that deepened my understanding and the authenticity with which I could present my understanding to others, I said, you know what? The time has come and I'll write the book. And so over the past four years, I've been writing the language of coaching, which is now obviously going to be the, the center of what you and I will talk about primarily, which came out earlier this year. Yeah, and I'm I'm currently reading it, and it's I have to say it's a very easy read, but it's incredibly Good. resourceful and 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 practical too. I think is probably the most important thing. Um, so honestly, great job there. And thank you. Near near the beginning of the book, you highlight a trend that I think is is so true, and now more so than ever. You state that we spend far more time coaching than we do programming. Yet most of us prefer to talk about the latter rather than the former. And we talk, yes. we talk shop about the what far more than the how. I'm stealing your words. You'll probably, uh, yeah. you can, you <laughs> can call sure me out I stole on that. them, Andy, from somebody else. So. <laughs> why, why do you think um, coaching delivery and execution get, say, a lack of justifiable attention? I guess is what I'd, I'm really curious to hear from you. You know, yeah. Um, I think there's a number. There's a number of reasons. And most certainly, um, I could be wrong here, and I definitely won't name them all. But the first thing it comes down to is I just think the, the, the nature of, <clears throat> of cognition in that take concrete versus abstract. You know, a concrete thing would be I can see a chair in front of me. I can hold it. I can handle it. I can sit on it. It doesn't take a lot of cognitive effort to see and identify that as a chair. However, if I ask you to theoretically picture a chair and see that chair with great detail 
and start to see how tall it is, how wide it is. You know, what kind of chair is it? Is it a chair that we would see in an office? Is it a chair that would go around a table? Now, I'm just riffing here. I'm making this up. But just in both examples, it's a chair, right? But in example number one, it's concrete. It's tangible. I can see it. I can experience it. The effort is not inside of me. The effort is outside. It's right there. I don't have to do any of the work. But then when I say imagine the chair, and especially when I start to ask you to visualize it with great detail and think about a chair in the abstract form, in the theoretical form, because it doesn't literally exist in front of you, that takes a bit more effort. And so using that, if you would, as as a thought experiment in its basic form tells us something that we typically take the path of least resistance. We are going to focus on the things that from a cognitive energy perspective, to use uh, Chiksai Mahai's term when he talks about the flow state, we tend to go down the, the cognitively least expensive route. And so if we now take our field, programming, reps and sets, I can see the physical words on the paper or in the Excel file or in the app. I can see the visual demonstration of the exercises in front of me, right? The actual programming and everything that goes into it is far more concrete than communication. Communication is something that is fundamentally invisible. It's not like, you know, we see little word bubbles coming out of our mouth as we talk to someone. And so language by its very essence is this abstract, invisible thing that we do all the time. But very rarely are we aware of how we are doing it. And even when something goes wrong in a drill, Andy, or in an exercise, how often do we pinpoint, ah, it was our communication? I think oftentimes we think of ah, that, was a, that was the wrong exercise for them, which most certainly can be the case sometimes. Or they didn't understand right? Or they need more practice. You see what I'm doing here? Mm. So we come up with a lot of reasons why this concrete thing, this movement, this exercise they're performing didn't work. And most certainly communication is talked about and, and, and buy-in in psychology. They're talked about, but by their very nature, they're more cognitively expensive ideas. They take more effort on you as the user to think to be introspective, to reflect and try to, just as I asked you to make the invisible chair visible in your mind, take this invisible concept of communication and make it visible, tangible, something that you can turn in your mind and say, ooh, that wasn't quite right. How could I have phrased that better? And so my first then answer to the question is the, the very nature of communication is it's abstract compared to programming. And because of its abstract nature, it takes more cognitive energy, it takes more thought, and thus it typically isn't gonna be the first port of call when we look at development, or even when we look at, hey, what's going on here as the first way to maybe improve an outcome. So that's one. Number two is, and this is kind of chicken or the egg, <laughs> as to why. Now, before we got on this call, you and I were talking about academics and the academic process. Obviously, I went through exercise and sports science. And when I look back, now this was early 2000, so maybe it's changed. I had a communications class, but that was on public speaking. And it was a one-off. I had no other class, even within classes on periodization, that really talked about cueing, instruction, and feedback. 
you know, we didn't get into the theory of, of how language is processed, how we can use analogies and cues to shape movement like a, a surgeon, you know, or a, a person who is an artist. We didn't talk about language in that way. We didn't talk about it at all. And if you got that from a, a lecture, it was by chance more than choice. And so I think not only do we find that it's more abstract, thus more difficult to think about and develop, but our actual academic processes that are meant to scaffold our understanding of the knowledge and the domains we need to be developing within our given and chosen profession, it's not there either. And so it remained elusive. It's remained invisible. And so even though we do it all the time, we don't know it is there. And it goes back to the old analogy. The two fish are swimming in the bowl. And the older fish comes up to them and says, the water is nice today. And the two fish say, what water? When you are in something, you, it becomes invisible to you. And that's why for me, I'm working tirelessly to try to make this invisible thing visible because in it, in it lies so much power and the way we connect, communicate and change for the better how our athletes move. I think it's interesting because I think two coaches could pick the same exercise at the right time, both coach it and both get different results. And I think two, two, two clinicians equally could uh, decide to do the same manual therapy treatment or approach on the same athlete and, and again, yield different results from their delivery. And I think that's one of the things from a coaching standpoint I've really taken from your, from your book is that you can have the right approach, but your delivery actually is, is probably the differentiator a lot of the time. Yeah, and, and let's be clear for everyone listening, this is in no way meant to undermine the importance of, as, as you said earlier, the what of what we do, the programming, the exercise, the drill. That's important. You know, if you're doing some kind of massive endurance set before you get into your high load power set, th those things still matter. Transfer of training specificity all these things still matter. And so what I'm trying to explain to people is this is in no way meant to take away from what you focused your time on because you need to know what to coach. You need to know how to periodization. That is the environment. That is the context that all this occurs. But once I have that context outlined, I need to help the person navigate it. And language and communication is a primary tool to get the information off the program and into the person. And I can relate to what you're saying a lot as a coach, but I think even more so actually as a physio where exercise makes up a large part, if not the largest remedy of injury management. Yet I think physios or PTs are just not typically taught how to coach effectively in cue. And it's the cueing part of delivery in rehabilitative, in rehabilitative exercise that is one of the most critical skills because I think you know, the muscle or the movement or the skill is detrained, delayed, weak, uncoordinated, whatever the sort of pathology and problem is. So mm, the how is sure. the how is obviously truly critical, as you've just, you know, you've just mentioned, but I can't have you on the show and not selfishly discuss cueing, because I think cueing is, is more than the words or gestures that your book highlights. It, you know, without me still more material from the book, would you mind uh, explaining the sort of coach athlete relationship and how that underpins language or cueing? Yeah, uh, there, there, there's a lot here, but I have a, a stream of consciousness. Funny enough, because of a video I just watched, I want to take this, this this answer, so to speak, on. And let's let's look at why cueing even exists, right? Like, why would a coach ever need to open their mouth? Because 
at the end of the day, and I said this the other day on an Instagram post, I believe if coaches, if there was no reason for a coach to communicate, then we probably wouldn't be called coaches. We're more likely to be called programmers because that's what we would do, right? We'd write programs. We'd explain them just to make sure the context is there and we'd hand them to people and they would go do it. But we're not called programmers. We're called coaches, coaches. And even what you do in physiotherapy or physical therapy, I would say you are coaching. You are embodying the act of coaching or teaching. And for me, let's put a definition on coaching. Coaching is taking people in a movement context from where they are to where they want to be, right? So we're guides. So it doesn't matter. And that's why when I say coaching, I'm talking about the movement profession as a whole. And so back to the original point, we don't just hand out programs, And we all know that we can explain a movement or a drill at its base level, and we can watch someone perform it. And especially if they're a novice, you know, and I think of just a simple example we all can relate to, learning to ride a bike. For certain tasks, the task itself is enough of a teacher. You know, gravity is a pretty powerful teacher when it comes to, to riding a bike. But for my son and my daughter, you know, early on, gravity was also a harsh teacher. And so I could see that to break through their frustration and to get them to the next level, they needed some kind of guidance. They needed some kind of a cue because of all the information they could be focusing on. Should I focus on my hands? Should I focus on my feet? Should I focus on the bike? Should I focus on not falling? Should I focus on balancing? Now, even though these weren't the terms, they wouldn't be using this as the youngsters they were linguistically. In their mind, they're trying to figure out, here's the simple, here's the simple piece here, where to place their attention. And what I found is, okay, with language, I could help my son and my daughter simplify this problem by not giving them the answer. Because the answer is ultimately riding the bike. I'm not the one riding the bike. So they have to find the answer, but I could give them a clue. Now, in movement profession, we call them cues. But I like to, as, as a way by analogy, think of them as clues. And the clues I would give my son and my daughter, and I gave them the same three, is, okay, you want to feel pressure through the pedal. P&P creates an alliteration, so it's easy for kids to remember. Pressure through the pedal and look straight ahead. And that's it. That was all I ever gave them. And that was what they needed to focus their attention on the right features of the environment, of the bike, and and of gravity to be able to learn to ride it. And I'll take that one step further. Inevitably, pressure and and vision, because ultimately where my head goes, the bike goes. We know this. And pressure through the pedal was to help make sure my son kept actually pushing through the pedal because he would just coast, and then he'd lose momentum and fall over. But inevitably, he started to ride, but he kept falling over. And the reason he kept falling over is when he'd pick up speed, the handlebars would start to shake. And so I asked him a very simple question. I said, his name's Madden. I said, Madden, to keep the bike, and he's four, to keep the bike going straight. And I showed him, do you think the handlebars should go side to side or should they stay straight ahead? And he said, straight ahead. I said, okay. So when your handlebars are moving side to side, they're kind of being loud, aren't they? He's like, yeah. And when your handlebars are straight, they're kind of being quiet, aren't they? He's like, yeah. I'm like, so do you think we should have loud or quiet handlebars, right? So this is so I made sure he understood it. He said, quiet, beautiful. So now he's riding his bike, right? And and his handlebars start to go all over the place. And I say, keep them quiet. And that was, that was enough. That was enough for him to get right back. Keep the handlebars straight. Bike would go straight ahead. And I only had to say that to him probably for two or three outings and then push through the pedal. Eyes straight ahead. 
and quiet handlebars were all gone. Now, would he inevitably have figured that out even if I had said nothing? Yes, in the case of the bike riding, he would have. Would he have figured it out as fast? Probably not. And would there possibly been more frustration and pain in him learning with zero guidance? Yeah, possibly. I'm not saying there would be, but possibly. And so what this bike riding example illustrates is a microcosm. And that is for any given activity, walking, walking, walking stairs, crawling, riding a bike, or the more complex skills that we see in sport and life, uh, you're going to be able to learn from the physical act of performing the skill just implicitly. But inevitably, we have to we have to look at the body. The body, there's nothing in our genes that say we need to be the best at baseball. <laughs> there's nothing in our genes that say we need to be the best at cricket or rugby or basketball, right? There, there's no evolutionary basis for the optimization of a shooting skill, let's say. Maybe throwing, yes, but shooting a basketball, no, I'd say. And so why does that matter? Well, the body operates off a of good enough. And I think we know this. Inevitably, most individuals, right, they can walk, they can run, they can change direction. And we all do it in more or less a similar way. But the margins of having average movement to elite movement, even if they might be small, they're significant when it comes to performance. And thus, what we start to find is the environment by its very nature is a good teacher, but only to a given level. And thus, in instances where a coach, a personal trainer, a physical therapist come on board, we are basically saying societally that we need someone to get us beyond what we can do on our own beyond what would be an evolutionary norm for this given movement or this given skill. And that's where we need individuals, what I collectively call movement professionals, who know how to, and this is what we do, guide attention. That's it. Because at the end of the day, I'm not the one performing the movement. This isn't Pinocchio. I'm not the puppeteer. They are still the one performing it. And so if we actually ask ourselves, what are we what are we manipulating as coaches? We're manipulating attention. We're manipulating literally where they are focusing on the landscape of all the internal and external feelings and senses and perceptions that are available to us. And we can shift that attention, most certainly through drills. Uh, for example, if I put a mini band around your knees during a squat, is that going to change where your focus goes when you perform that squat compared to the version of it without the miniband? Well, 100% it does. There's an increased proprioceptive stimulus. There's increased proprioceptive energy, if you would, about the knee, which obviously is going to be affecting the entire lower limb and up the chain. And so by its very nature, what it typically causes people to do is to push into the band. And thereby, if they have poor knee control, it might help them control their knee for those repetitions. And hopefully, if we do that long enough, we might make some motor and mechanical changes that allow them to control that movement with, without it. And we collectively call those constraints. But even a constraint, Andy, can only take us so far. 
I've used constraints, ways to manipulate the environment, to manipulate movement implicitly. Think of it as the learning to ride the bike principle. You try to change a feature of the environment that by its very nature is going to give the person information that causes them to change the movement themselves. You know, for example, in football or, or soccer, as you now would say, stateside, if we make the pitch smaller and we create rules that you can only have three touches on the ball before you have to pass, well, all of a sudden now there'll be more ball movement and I'm going to have to make more passing. So by its very nature, it's going to start to change my skill and understanding of skill. And so we could go through the examples and read books like Outliers and, and Talent Code by Daniel Coyle where they talk about futsal. The environment is a teacher. And I'm making this point. The environment is a strong teacher. But it is not sufficient if we want to make a large change in movement. And, and in some cases, a small change, practically speaking, is still large, is still significantly important. You working as a physical therapist, you know, sometimes being able to change just a few degrees in a coordination pattern can be the difference between pain and no pain. Hmm. And so when I say large, think of large on, uh, in, in a manner that relates to the person in their situation. And so if we assume that the environment is a teacher, we want to get the most out of the teacher, but it's insufficient, then the next thing we need to ask is, well, how do we get more out of it? And that's where the movement professional comes in. That's where the coach comes in. And that's where our use of language, our use of communication, and even kinesthetically touch at times can direct attention in different ways. And when we start to look at that, I say, okay, I agree. As a movement professional, my job is to manipulate how attention is paid to the environment and collectively the environment and the way I pay attention to it is my teacher. My role as the coach is to help them pay attention to the right features when they can't figure it out for themselves. The next logical question is, well, how do we do that? How do we do that more effectively? How do I, as a movement professional, become an expert at guiding attention? And in my case, we look at one of the key ways to do that through language. And when we start to look at language, we talk to people all the time. So let's be very clear when does this language matter? Well, I'll make the argument very simple. The cue is the last thing as a movement professional we say to the person before they move, right? So the cue is literally that. It's a cue. It's a reminder of what they need to think about while they move, which is to say what they need to focus on hmm. while they move, drawing their attention to the right feature of the environment for them to implicitly learn, to pick up the right information to make a change, so if we agree to that, we say, okay, finally then, what needs to go in there and how much? Meaning, how many cues can I give them? And is there any science or practical insight that tells me the kind of cues that work best? And these are two really important questions. And I'm going to answer these briefly, and then we can dig in where you'd like. The first one is, well, when it comes to paying attention to something, go no farther than to investigate your own intuition and answer the question, how many things can you pay attention to in a given moment at one time? And usually people say, oh, maybe two or three. I say, hold on now. In a given moment, how many things can you pay attention to? Do you read all the words in a 10-word sentence in that one moment, or do you have to read them one word at a time? Ah, well, I have to read them one word at a time. Okay, when you pull into traffic suddenly on the motorway or the freeway now for you, Andy, do you turn down the music? Do you hit the brakes and maybe even drop the sandwich, stop the conversation you're having with the passenger? Yeah, I do all those things. Okay. So by its very nature, we know that attention is a limited capacity resource. And even though in the short term we can remember multiple cues, our ability to focus on a cue in any given moment is going to be one-to-one. -one. We can only have one major spotlight going on.
And so the, the major premise that I argue in the book to begin with in chapter two, pay attention, is the one cue, one focus rule. That the movement itself is going to draw down attention and focus, and it's going to take up some cognitive energy, if you would. So as a coach, if we decide to give a cue, and let me be clear, we don't always have to give cues, but when we decide to give a cue, we should give one cue, one spotlight, one address in the GPS, so to speak, at a time. So that's principle number one when it comes to cueing. And then principle number two is, okay, if it's one, what should that one thing be? And now let's be very clear, there isn't some cookie cutter approach to creating cues, but there are principles that can guide more effective cueing. And within those principles, there's some ways to shape it based on your understanding of the individual in front of you. And this was a very long route to get to ultimately, I'm sure Andy, what your question was, which was around this idea of internal versus external cueing. And to put it in very simple terms, people have long asked the question, is it better to think about the body while I move, what we call internal cueing, so a joint, flex, extend, rotate, a muscle, activate, tighten, shorten, or is it better to think about an outcome, a goal, or dare I say the physical environment I'm trying to work in, what we call external. So in the case of a jump, push the ground away. That's focusing on environment. Jump as high as you can. That's focusing on outcome. Explode off the ground and get tall like a rocket to the sky. That's using a figurative external cue. It's an analogy. It's something in my mind only, but it's still referencing an outcome outside of my physical body. And so when we start to look at this continuum of cues of internal to external, our intuition tells us that both probably have a role. And they both do have a role but not when it comes to cueing. When it comes to cueing, the evidence and experience if you target your own intuition is clear. We want to make sure that while people are moving, their mind centrates on something external, the environment, the outcome, or analogical, an analogy. Move as if you're a jet taking off in the case of a sprint. And we can start to unpack why that is, but the simple reason is this. If attention can only be paid and focused on one major feature in any given moment, if I ask you to focus on your hips or your knees or your ankles in a jump, by the very nature, I'm asking you to focus on part of a movement, but still by its very nature requires all of those joints to be involved. So how can I ask you to focus solely on what your hips are doing while your hips, your knees, your ankles, and your upper body have to synchronize together to perform the movement. There's a lack of logic in that thought process that manifests itself in what we now know in constraining the way we move when we give internal cues. And so we can, we can unpack this further, but the, the punchline is one cue, and as best you can, and this is what my book goes into at depth to show you how to do it, make it an external cue or an analogy. Before you get to that moment where you you leave kind of a, a lingering focus for the the athlete to to think about or or sort of interact with while they do the the task, before you get to that stage when you say you know hypothetically you're with a new athlete, do you have not in a formulaic way, but do you uh, try to sort of unravel how that person learns or thinks? I know like NLP as an example in the past has looked mm. at you know w which kind of sense I guess 
the person likes to tap into habitually to learn and and sort of communicate do, is there do you make kind of considerations yourself with new athletes to, to understand them in that way most certainly i do and, and i do it a number of different ways um and so a couple different routes to doing that one route when you're working with a brand new athlete i'll sit down and i'll say you know i have a number of questions for them of course but one of the key ones is talk to me about your favorite coach or your favorite teacher and start to unpack why they were their favorite coach or their very their favorite teacher and what you find is in asking that question it starts to reveal the, the answer andy to the questions you're alluding to there around you know do i sense myself as being more kinesthetic i've got to do it am i more visual do I need to, to see it or do I need to imagine it? Am I more verbal, which is to say, am I more literal? Just tell me exactly what you want me to do or, or some combination thereof. I think the, the key to understand about that collective domain that we call learning, that, that conventionally is called learning styles, but scientifically should be called learning preferences, is that even though many of us have a preference for how we learn, the evidence is clear that there is no such thing as learning style, which means you can only learn or dominantly learn in, in one way, but rather the way you go about learning should be appropriate for what you are trying to learn. But that doesn't, that matters. But in the same token, if I play devil's advocate with myself, I still psychologically speaking at the level of wanting to gain trust to develop rapport, I want you to know that I care, that I listen, that your background and your individual preferences matter to me. And so whether I give someone, ask them that question, as I articulated, to describe their favorite coach, and I unpack that, or we use something like the VARC scale or a related one to look at learning preferences, I think these are great ways just to get to know the person in front of you. I don't think you need to necessarily have a written test to do that. Uh, but for me, when it comes to language, and, and I put a post on this the other day around this condition called aphantasia, there are known differences, let's say, in, in imagery. So when we talk and we cue individuals, if I'm using a lot of analogies that require you to imagine a lot of things, almost like we did at the beginning of this podcast, imagining that there's a chair. We know that people vary on their ability to generate motor or visual imagery. And so in those cases, now we, we haven't gotten into specific examples here, but let me give you one. Let's take the case of a sprint. I, I use this one quite a bit. I could give three different cues, and I'm going to argue that they work on the scale of low visual to high visual. And so if we have someone at the start line and they're doing a sprint, a low visual cue would be a pure internal cue, extend your hips, okay, or rapidly extend your hips or knee, whatever joint you'd like, okay, and involved in that chain reaction of pushing. Then the next cue could be, I need you to push the ground away. Well, now at least the ground starts to give me something to anchor my body to. It's a, it's a bit more visual, I would argue, because just extending the hips requires me to kind of take a bird's eye view of my body while I'm extending. That's not a very natural thing to do, but seeing someone push the ground away, that tends to be a little bit more visually accessible, we find. 
And then finally, I could say something very, that requires great levels of imagination. You know, I want you to imagine that there's a rattlesnake two feet behind you about to snap, bite your Achilles tendon. And as you get off that line, you need to beat the bite. And for context, Andy, a lot of my work used to be in Phoenix, Arizona. So it was a, it was a very logical visual cue to say that a rattlesnake might be behind you. And for someone that hates snakes, that adds an emotional texture that allows it to be very memorable. And so if I take those three cues and I was to show a picture of sprinting and those three cues, and I was to ask 100 people, which cue you, would you prefer? Likely those that are more on our visual scale who have strong motor imagery abilities, they would like that external cue or that analogy. But those that are a bit more literal, which is to say they, they likely have less motor imagery abilities, and, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's just naturally the way that they are. They'd probably prefer something where the, the literal nature of the language tells the story, uh, push the ground away or extend a joint. And so when we start to look at that, I think that's really useful information. The ultimate question, though, is how does it change my practice? Okay. And here's the way I look at it. it it doesn't change my practice a ton. And here's why. Because at the end of the day, I always use both types of language. I use language that is both literal and language that is visual. And I explain this in the book through what I call the coaching communication loop. And that we have three sources of information. We don't always have to use them all. But theoretically, when we're teaching something for the first time, well, there's three sources of information I'm going to give the person in a, in a specific sequence that I call describe, demonstrate, and cue before they do. So the description is for the person that needs that literal understanding. Hey, you're about to go through a sprint. When you sprint from head to heel, you're going to get nice and long. That means your hip, your knee, and your ankle are going to extend. Now, let me be very clear, Andy. I usually wouldn't go into that level of literal uh, description with people, but some people like that. And so for my person that really likes the detail, I'm going to, as a one-off, I'm going to give them that detail. Then I'm going to demonstrate. So I take that literal information. I put it into a visual context. And so even if I don't have good motor imagery abilities, that doesn't necessarily stunt my ability to, to understand movement per se. And it offloads it kind of like I did earlier. Instead of having to imagine the chair, I make it concrete. I put the chair in front of you. I give you a literal visual demonstration. And so now if you would, I've given you two sources of information, verbal, visual. In the teaching world, we call that dual coding. And that just heightens, it brings into HD the information that you need to know. And, and basically, what have I given them in that description and that demonstration? The knowledge of what they're going to do. And so now psychologically speaking, less risk of anxiety because they're, they've now become acquainted. They've been introduced to this new task. For the person that likes the detail or dare I say needs the detail, there it is for them. They can ask any questions that they have. But now we get to the business end of the relationship, as you talked about earlier, Andy, where now we have to send them into the movement. And to send them into the movement, that's where I take that deep breath and say, now to do that, to achieve that outcome, to achieve what we just described, this is I want what I want you to focus on. And so even for the person that might lack some of the visual imagery, I might say, if there was a snake, notice how I, say, I, don't, I don't ask them to visualize it. I said, if there was a snake two feet behind you about to strike your ankle, how much quicker would you get off that line than if there wasn't one? And I think any logical person would say, 
I get off a lot faster. And so even though I might ultimately continue to adapt my language to the person, what I tried to demonstrate there is I use a multiple learning preferences approach. And I do it in a way where one piece of information benefits the next piece of information. But ultimately, it allows me to get to the queue, and I take all the noise of these long descriptions, and I leave it at the front. I take the pause, and I allow the queue to live by itself to make sure that they know that's the central and only meaningful thought to guide their attention while they move. And that is, that is a critical takeaway because so many people hide their singular beautiful cue inside that long narrative, leaving it to the athlete to try to remember or pick out what cue they should be using while they move. And that's why the coaching communication loop was designed to help people increase the odds of getting the right information on board while the athlete, client, or patient moves. You know, we're obviously in this kind of uh, information age at the moment, let's call it that, and especially in sport. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to challenge why we do this because I think a lot of the times it's it's very valid when we use our technology to get objective measures of athletes and and profile them. We've we've spoken about the kind of um, you know meet and greet of the athlete and how you understand them. We've discussed a little bit about how you kind of coach them and, and cue them and evaluate it. Do you, uh, I guess, document? what's worked and when it's worked with athletes as a kind of critical piece of information that makes your coaching profile for that individual? In principle, you should. Yes. How you document it, I think, is up to the individual. And so let me explain what I mean by that. Because I have personally now been utilizing these techniques of identifying the right cue for the right movement for the right person at the right moment, there is this natural affinity, this gravitational pull, if you would, that I'm constantly looking to capture what was the one idea, the one cue, whether I came up with it or possibly the athlete came up with it and I just facilitated. What was the one big idea that really helped them today? And I always make a mental log of that. And that, if you would, is the, it's where I pause the video on Netflix. You know, when you just turn the TV off and you open that show back up, it says resume. That's my resume with that athlete. That's going to be the idea that we pick up on, on the next session. And sometimes I'll remind them of it. Sometimes they'll remind me of it, but either way, I'm trying to get them back to that headspace. And that's where we continue to build their story, so to speak. And so that's how I work. However, in the case of, let's say minor league baseball, and you know how much you know about minor league baseball, but in the spring training, it's very likely that a pitcher, as an example, might work with five or six different pitching coaches. And from spring training, they're going to usually go with one of those coaches to their high A, their double A, whatever their team is. So it's quite possible that in those contexts, you could be having five or six different coaches working with one person. And so in those organizations, you want to be physically documenting two main things. One, what's the one big area that this person is working on? It could be a pitch. It could be an aspect of a pitch. Same thing could be hitting really any sport. It doesn't matter. Insert sport here. But then what they'll put next to that is if you would, their routine, their mental routine, or any of the key cues that seem to be the breadcrumbs leading them towards the desired destination. And 
let's be very clear. These cues can come from the coach. They can come from the athlete. It doesn't matter, but they're physically documenting those in a central repository where then anyone can access. So if I'm working with that pitcher for the first day, I'm hitting that same, I didn't resume, so to speak, at the same part of that athlete's journey as the coach that was with them two days prior. And so I, I joke, but I outline this in, in literal nature in the book. We simply need to add a new column to our program design sheets. We have one for exercises, reps, sets, and loads. We need to add one for cues. And I think as technology evolves, it's going to allow us to capture and keep and, and evolve the cues that work for our diversity of athletes across their diversity of movements. But it starts with us recognizing that language and what they think while they move, it starts with us recognizing that that is a variable and that cueing is only the means by which we guide and develop that variable, being their focus and their attention. Hmm. I think as well, if, in a weird way, well, not in a weird way, actually, I think as a coach or as a clinician, when you see that athlete the next time, if you've actually documented um how they best uh, responded to a cue and you can use the same cue every time and you can, or not every time, but you can use familiar cues and the cues that they like. I think, in a, you know, the athlete's going to feel looked after. If you can remember it off the top of your head, great. But if you, if you can't, but that you've set right, up does. a system yeah. to, to jog your memory and, and prompt you to do that. I think the athlete will always feel uh, some trust and some rapport with you because you can communicate with them personally and, and they feel kind of considered. But Andy, to that, to that exact point, and for me, it's almost a footnote in the book, but I, I say it in part three that ultimately this book is not about cueing. It's about connecting. Hmm. That is what it's about. Because if I get my language right, I introduce an idea in your mind. Here's the key that connects you to your body. And so there's two relationships always going on when it comes to cueing. It's myself and the athlete and the athlete and themselves, their mind and their body coming together in harmony, a partnership between what I focus on and the body meant to bring it to life. And I'm not saying this to be whimsical or mystical. This is literally what occurs. And to your very point then, if I'm strategically using what we're calling here is red thread cueing, I'm bringing ideas from one session to the next, or better yet, I'm listening to my athlete, and I'm using their stories and their experiences to manufacture new analogies. Let's say I have someone that likes Superman more than Batman, but I'm giving them an RDL, I'm having them perform an RDL, I say, get long like Batman. In one, for one person who likes Batman, that's a really great cue, get long like Batman's diving off a, a, a building. But for the person who just told me a few days ago that they like Superman over Batman, that would suggest that I'm not even listening. But reverse that, and all of a sudden, Superman is something that connects with them. They like Superman. Superman's also a body position that relates to this movement. So I take something they're familiar with to teach them something they're unfamiliar with. What that does is it says, my coach listens. My coach understands me. My coach used something that I enjoy thinking about as it is to get me to perform something that I want to be better at. And all of a sudden we start to say, well, that's, that's the seedlings of a pretty positive relationship, listening, connecting, developing, who doesn't want to be around a person that does that. And so oftentimes inadvertently, we think of these cues as trivial things, but for me, they're the ones and zeros of building effective relationships in the context of movement coaching. 
and I think, you know, we're talking a lot about um, what the athlete or the patient's experiencing, but I think from a selfish point of view and on reflection, I've always enjoyed my day job more when I've had those connections and I've been able to yes. solve the problem through a genuine interaction rather than this kind of algorithmic program where I, I, I look at some numbers, I prescribe some numbers and then I see some numbers back. It's, it's a very different uh, job and I think you, you get a lot more longevity in the career um, if you can enjoy those interactions over the, the smaller details of what we do. Yeah, in, in, the, same, in the same moment, they get to reap the dopamine release and the joy of hearing a cue that makes sense and works. We get the same dopamine hit and joy of seeing them understand it and seeing it work. And so it's absolutely mutually beneficial. I couldn't agree more, Andy. You've, um, you've swapped eggs for a rugby ball, obviously. And, um, and without a doubt, you're in a different country, culture and sporting environment. How's that? Mm. I'm really curious. How's that changed or developed your abilities as a coach or head of performance? You know, it, it's, um, had I not, had I not been so deeply invested in this idea around communication and connection, I don't know if I could have made the jump as easily as I, I'd like to think that I have. And at the same time, I could get away with the fact that I was the, the quote-unquote dum-dum, so to speak. And I played that card anytime I could, trying to get athletes and other coaches to teach me about the game. You know, I said, hey, listen, I'm coming from a game where we throw the ball forward. And so I need you to help me understand. And so I think that by just my natural tendency played very well. But as I got them to talk and as I got them to explain and they opened up and shared, all the while I'm sitting there taking down in my mental notebook, my mental Evernote, so to speak, what words are they using? What phrases are they using? What are the, what are the buzzwords? What are the key shortcuts? What are the analogies? What are the kind of colloquial slang statements? How do they even vary across the four provinces? And I was just constantly making notes and I'd physically write those down at, at times as well, especially if I was worried I wouldn't remember them. And what that allowed me to start to do was to accelerate my mirroring of and adoption of the language. The language just in general you know, living in Ireland and, and speaking with those, making sure that I'm using terms and phrases that people are going to connect with. And that's just around the office. Then there was the specific rugby jargon. And then there's the coaching itself. And ultimately, when it came to coaching on the pitch, I got to have a bit of fun with this. I got to be have fun with my Americanized analogies. And some of them landed really well. But the ones that didn't, Andy, we got a good laugh out of them. And from there, it allowed this open and this requiring of vulnerability to say, okay, here's what I'm trying to explain. So I'd go back to the literal or I'd do a demonstration that describe and demonstrate. And I'd say, what would you say or what would you think about to achieve that? And over time, I started to, if you would use the, 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 the Queen's English or so, <laughs> even though I don't say that here, <laughs> I start to use the way English is spoken on this side of the world. And I started to infuse the words, the phrases, the analogies. Field became pitch. Cleats became boots. You know what I mean? And slowly but surely, now I could, quote unquote, speak the language. And I don't know if I would have done it with such precision and purpose. And I don't want to sit here and be all grandiose, blowing smoke here as if I'm perfect. By no means am I. I still make plenty of mistakes and get plenty of laughs for saying, you know, these overly Americanized statements. But at the same time, I think what the players appreciate is I make an effort. 
and I make an honest effort and I adapt and I evolve and they know that I'm trying to help them come up with the best way to focus to get the most out of these movements that they they feel are so important in this case to the game of rugby and that goes back to your point you know a, a question or so ago around connection and as the old adage goes showing them that I care before I show them how much I know and I think it's through that caring mm. that we both were able to increase our knowledge is the the language side of coaching is it unfinished business are you going to are you going to continue to do some you know research and work in this space or um, do you think you would ever sort of pivot to focusing on another area within our profession? Gosh, I, and I've not been asked that question. I love that question. Um, well, no, it's not, it's not done. I, I don't think this will ever be done. The language of coaching. I think it's, it's an area that needs, uh, definitely more than, than one voice. And most certainly there are other voices, but we need more loud voices in this space. Uh, I, I already have a second edition of the book in my mind and I bring in nonverbal things like body language and tone of voice just to start to round out the actual spoken word. And, you know, really I'm, I'm already starting to craft the next book project, which uh, for me will be a popular science version of the language of coaching to have it maybe be a bit more targeted at the end user at the athlete, because as we've been talking about, you know, we're talking about cues, we're talking about language, but ultimately language is a means to an end. The end is what they pay attention to. And so focusing a book actually on, on what to think while you move is something I'm really passionate about to empower our athletes and our movers of the world with this information, not just those who are you know paid or responsible for making that movement better. Mm. So, but uh, plenty to do, plenty to do in this space. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll link your book in the show notes and I really do urge all the listeners to to buy it. Whatever kind of role within sports medicine or coaching they do, whatever their craft is, uh, I definitely encourage them to read it. And where's the best place for people to follow you? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to do a lot more open source stuff on this space on my website, which is same as the book, thelanguageofcoaching.com. If there are any questions from people listening today, they can email me at info at thelanguageofcoaching.com. And I try to keep my stream of consciousness flowing on Twitter and Instagram at Nick Winkleman. Well, Nick, I um, I thank you so much. I wish I'd had this conversation with you 10 years or so ago when I began my career, but equally it's been just as valuable today as it probably would have been then. So um, yeah, thank you for your generosity and your, and your, your wealth of wisdom in today's conversation. Oh, thanks for the platform. I appreciate it, Andy. Thank you. An enormous thank you to Nick for coming on today's show. As I'm sure you all could, I for one could definitely have continued asking questions and absorbing Nick's charismatic responses and in essence coaching to all of us. I hope it won't come across listening, but as the host of the show, I actually found myself listening so avidly that I almost forgot I needed to ask questions to him uh, and actually host the conversation to make an episode for informed performance. I won't spoil the news yet, but informed performance will be expanding our content offering over the next few months. As biased as I am telling you this, I would encourage you all listening to follow us on social media on Instagram at InformPerformance or on Twitter at InformPod to catch new episode releases and also any other news or updates from us. I'm Andy McDonald and thanks for listening to the Inform Performance podcast. Both myself and Ben Ashworth, who make up Inform Performance, are really proud to have reached 50 episodes. So thank you all for listening to it. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.